passage in the Gospel of Matthew today. We're continuing the Christmas theme, which I know sounds a little bizarre, but there's a Christmas story that we don't often tell from the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll find it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. If you've got a Bible or a device there, you might like to just stick your thumb in if you're using a paper Bible. If you've got a device, find that passage. We'll read it together in a few moments. But before we get to that, I just want you to speculate with me on the sorts of things that are likely to wake you in the night. We have um, around our place at the moment, there across in Leneva, some cats that take much delight in roaming around at night time and then getting into, what's a good word, a spat, into conflict and you can hear them, a cat fight at night time which over the last couple of nights has woken me up and there's a thing that's sort of deep in my psyche about cats that um, I just want to deal with them and I'm not going to say any more than that. Um, but I'm not all that impressed when I'm woken from a sleep by cats at night. What sort of things wake you up at night? I had a crack at writing a list of some of the things that I've experienced, like howling cats and barking dogs, barking foxes. Have you ever had fox barking outside your door or window or house? Uh, noisy possums, which often results in barking dogs. Screeching tyres. Emergency sirens. Yes. New Year's Eve revellers. That was very quiet in our neighbourhood. Uh, maybe I slept through it all. Um, a coughing spouse, banging doors, arguing neighbours, adult children arriving home late, <laughs> an adult child who leaves very early for work, footsteps outside the house. That's a problematic one, isn't it? Ever had that one? I can hear footsteps outside the house. A tree crashing down onto the house. This happened at uh, one time. Gosh, it gave me a fright. Children who wake you up and need a drink of water. <laughs> like they're going to dehydrate overnight. A noisy dishwasher. Uh, dripping taps. Actually, I'm thinking about that one. That's more likely to keep you awake rather than wake you up. A phone call just as you've drifted off to sleep. A late text message. A misset alarm. A crying grandchild. An owl hitting the window. Have you ever had that one? That's quite frightening too. We used to have geckos that would climb on the window, uh, what do you call those things, the screens. And an owl would come roaring in, bang, into the window. And then breaking glass. That was a scary one too. Um, at first I blamed my son, but actually it was um, others trying to get into the house. I've never been woken up by a smoke alarm. Has anyone had a smoke alarm go off in the middle of the night? Yeah, well, you should give up smoking, you guys. That's <laughs> where your problem is. Um, I've been fortunate not to have that experience. We were, as I said, woken up one night by a gang of crooks trying to break into the place, and that got the heart rate going, as being woken in the night can do. I've not had the experience of Diana rolling over and shaking me, saying, there's somebody outside, or I'm hearing some noises. Generally, if that's the case, she'll go and deal with it herself, and I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> You could probably add to that list, I'm sure. But I wonder what it was like for Mary when Joseph roused her all those years ago from sleep and said, and I suspect that this happened, and said, we need to get out of here right now. Have you had that experience of being woken from a deep sleep 
takes a while to kind of become cognizant, doesn't it? At first, you're not even sure where you are. I wonder if that was Mary's experience or whether she snapped awake and took action. Well, this morning we're going to um, continue our Christmas series with a passage, as I said, of scripture here from Matthew chapter 2, which is not often dealt with as part of the Christmas story, and yet it's part of what Matthew reported uh, that happened around the time that Jesus was born. It's not a story that normally I would choose to, uh, to deal with on New Year's Day. You know, New Year's Day typically is given over to revving up people with, you know, the opportunities and the blessings of the New Year. This is not a really happy story. It's not a story you're going to tell in kids' church, I don't think, Bethany, although knowing you, you might, you know, just because you're faithful to the word. It's not a story that's, um, that's particularly popular. It's a really um, sad story in a way. It's the story of the escape to Egypt or, um, in some translations, the death of the innocents. So let's read it together. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be on the screen today. So check it out in your own text there. Uh, this is the report of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. It follows on from the previous passage. Um, the Magi, the wise men, had been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Well, you can probably understand straight away why this passage is not high on the list of passages spoken around, about around Christmas and I don't imagine there's a single Christmas card that would go anywhere near what Matthew's reported here. In fact, the proclamation by the angels in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God and peace on earth to all upon who, uh, on whom God's favour rests, is in deep contrast, isn't it, with what has happened here, with the voices being raised by these mothers whose children were senselessly murdered by Herod. There was no peace in Bethlehem on that awful night. None whatsoever. We're not actually sure when this event took place. In fact, there are some people who would say, well, it's an odd passage. It's only found here in the Gospel of Matthew. We're not even sure whether it took place at all. But there's no reason to question the authenticity of the passage. In fact, there's very good reason to believe that it did happen. A couple of pieces of evidence. One is that Matthew, who was writing with a very specific purpose of demonstrating that Jesus was the Saviour King, incorporated this passage because it served his purpose in pointing towards that premise. But also what happened here was entirely consistent with the manner in which Herod behaved. 
because Herod was a despot. Does that word make sense? He was, he was uh, known as Herod the Great. Um, he would probably be better known as Herod the Paranoid because anyone who was close to Herod who demonstrated any form of um, disloyalty was in danger of being killed. Just by way of um, demonstrating this, let me give you a list of some of the people who um, found themselves in rather unfortunate circumstances. That's a metaphorical way of saying they were killed. Herod's younger brother uh, was becoming quite popular at one point. He suffered a drowning accident. The archaeologists who investigated the place where this took place discovered that the pool that he was drowned in was actually very shallow. So it wasn't like he got into deep water and couldn't help himself. Something terrible happened to him. A number of Herod's officials who were mistakenly suspected by Herod as plotting against him were put to death. Two of his sons, wrongly suspected of plotting against him, uh, were strangled in a fit of jealous rage and also without evidence as it was later shown he had his favorite wife murdered another son this one who was plotting against him and probably with good reason was executed executed five days before herod himself died and herod's paranoia was such that he was concerned so it is said that when he died there would not be sufficient grief and mourning in the land so he gave orders to have nobles in different parts of the country put to death on the same day so that there would be a collective grief and mourning that took place across the land. It's also said that uh, when Herod died, those nobles were set free and so there was celebration instead of mourning. But you get the picture, don't you? Herod was bad news. And as we know from Matthew chapter 2, when Herod uh, heard about Jesus, this this king who had been born from the magi he was deeply disturbed it tells us there in matthew chapter 2 verse 3 deeply disturbed and so was jerusalem with him such was the the news that stirred up the people uh, and then herod made inquiries he said to the magi to go to bethlehem with these instructions go and make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him report to me so that i might go and worship him too that's quite believable isn't it well, not to our ears, because we know what Herod was like. His intention was hardly uh, to go and worship. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, we're told that having been warned in a dream, the Magi did not go back to Herod, but returned to their country by another route. And at the same time, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream also, imparting to him some very specific instructions. Get up! We assume it was early in the night. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. It's interesting. Two occasions where God spoke through a dream. It's an interesting study to do. We won't um, dig down into that this morning. But the manner in which God communicates to us is not limited to the ways that we often think that it is. And God can speak to us and does speak to us through his word. He speaks to us through other people. He speaks to us through our circumstances and he can still speak to us through dreams. In verse 14, it suggests that Joseph and Mary made haste in leaving, which makes sense because if you know the, uh, the area there, Bethlehem is only about six kilometres in direct line with the Herodium, one of Herod's palaces where he most probably was. 
not far away. In fact, from the top of the Herodium, you could overlook Bethlehem. And so it's quite likely that as soon as Herod realised that he had been duped, that the Magi had deceived him, he gave orders to some of his troops to go and, uh, and deal with this situation. And the family escapes, heading to Egypt, a trip of perhaps six days or so walking. And on the odd occasion when I have preached on this passage, I spent just a few moments um, speculating on what happened in Bethlehem, and it's, it's risky to do because on the one hand, we live in a world that has been saturated by graphic violence, don't we? Uh, anything that masquerades as entertainment is likely to contain uh, quite graphic images. And so uh, even in thinking about what happened here, our, our, the risk is we'll read through it and we don't actually uh, gain any sense of the depth of grief that was experienced uh, in what transpired in Bethlehem after the family left. It's probable after Joseph and Mary left that a small detachment of Herod's soldiers entered Bethlehem. Bethlehem is only a small village, not a big place. Perhaps half a dozen families living there, maybe a dozen families, not, not a huge number. But they arrived charged with fulfilling Herod's very grisly duties. It's um, possible that Mary was woken from sleep um, and others were too as the soldiers arrived. Uh, you can just imagine the banging on the doors and people opening the door. What's going on to be greeted by uh, these soldiers looking for any infant boys under the age of two? And you can imagine the helpless frustration and the anger and the confusion and the, and the angst of Jewish fathers restrained by the... Um, the power and might and violence of the soldiers as what transpired before their eyes defies description. I'm not going to go too far there this morning because we've got a number of children in the midst of us. But just think about this for a second. What must that have been like? It's not easy to um, dwell in this space. It's easy, in fact, to... It's easier, in fact, to skip over this, which is kind of what we've trained ourselves to do, isn't it, in our society? We tend to want to hold tragedy at arm's length. We want to hold the pain of others away from us. It's hard. It's one of the challenges in ministry. It's, it's one of the challenges of being Christians to mourn with those who mourn because we've trained ourselves in the West to insulate ourselves from the reality of tragedy and grief and loss. And so when something happens to someone close to us, we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do because we're not used to sitting in that place. Our first reaction sometimes is to run away, get out of there, just, I, don't, I, I, I just can't handle it. And one of the things that this story reminds us of and more broadly the scripture reminds us is that we don't live in a utopian world that's free of pain and grief. We don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world that's stained by sin and pain. And yet even in that, in the midst of what's going on here, God protected the chosen one. God protected Jesus, that helpless baby, Jesus when he was in that uh, vulnerable place. 
At the direction of an angel, God sent an angel and Jesus was able to flee with his parents. But herein lies a problem, and I'm not going to avoid this problem uh, because it's a problem that's shipwrecked the faith of more than one person. If Jesus can protect, sorry, if God can protect Jesus, why didn't he protect the others? We're not talking about a huge number here. We might be talking, you know, Bethlehem uh, population of 50 or 60. We don't know for sure. Might have been more, might have been less. Half a dozen children at the most, perhaps under two. Why didn't God protect them? Has anyone got a great answer? It's, it's kind of a question that sits on a table like a snake, isn't it? You just see a snake curled up there. You reach out and try and grapple that with this question, you're just as likely to get bitten. It is a question that's shipwrecked the faith of more than a few people that I've encountered over the years. They've just not been able to reconcile God of love, God of mercy, God of justice with stuff in the world that seems to lack love and lack mercy and lack justice. Why doesn't God deal with this? And at the core, of course, is that age-old question of suffering. Why does God allow people to suffer? Why does God allow suffering in the world? Well, it's kind of frustrating that Matthew doesn't give us the answer. Well, not, not all of the answer. He does, he does kind of tinker with an answer, though. If you have a look at verse 17 and 18... Matthew says, you know, what happened, uh, it, it kind of lines up with prophecy from old. This, sorry, then what was said, he said in verse 17, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's a very interesting uh, reference to Ports. Uh, it's from uh, the book of Jeremiah, one of the ancient prophets, and it is of a time, and this is really significant, of a time of deep grief and loss in Israel, a time when the Babylonians came and carried them off into exile, when they were literally uprooted from their land and taken into exile. They were dragged out of Jerusalem, past Ramah, which is about six or seven miles out of Jerusalem, and off into a land that was not theirs. A time when they, they had this sense of uh, disconnection and grief and loss and Jeremiah the prophet spoke about that voice in Ramah, this weeping and mourning. Rachel, who had died generations before and was buried, interestingly enough, in Bethlehem, figuratively weeping, crying out because she was watching the nation being carried away. And so there's this sense of Matthew's picking up of deep grief and sorrow, which has been characteristic of the experience of Israel through history. And in a way, coming back to Matthew's purpose, it's Matthew's way of saying, this world is in such a need of a saviour. It's a world of pain and loss and grief and weeping and mourning. It needs to be liberated. In fact, uh, at a big level, uh, it's the clash of two kingdoms. What's happening here in Bethlehem in this tiny, insignificant village all this time ago is actually 
a, a symptom of, of two enormous kingdoms clashing, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Matthew doesn't shy away from the reality that even in close proximity to the child of God, to Jesus himself, in the very village where he was born, there is pain and grief and loss and senseless tragedy and gross injustice. From a human perspective, it's, it seems that God does not always act in the way that we think he should. But Matthew kind of wants to point us to the fact that God will act according to his purposes and ultimately he will have the victory. If you read more broadly in the context of Jeremiah there, Jeremiah finishes with hope. The hope that God will restore, the hope that God will bring his people back to himself. We don't know why God didn't protect these other children, but according to his perfect uh, purposes, there was a reason for that. And although we might propose some moderately decent theological arguments that satisfy us to some degree, we won't always understand what God's purposes are because they are beyond our comprehension. What we do know from the scripture is that it was on the anvil of persecution as a child that Jesus was shaped to be the man that he was. And we do know that it was ultimately through the greatest injustice, Jesus' murder at the hands of the people, that the new covenant would be ushered in. It was through suffering that God brought about his redemption. It was through pain that God brought about restoration. And through this even senseless suffering caused by a despotic tyrant, God brings about his purposes. One of the questions that was kind of banging around in my head was why would Matthew even bother to include this passage? There's a couple of thoughts um, uh, why, why he would do that. First of all, uh, we just need to keep in mind that Matthew wanted his readers, his listeners to understand that Jesus was indeed the Saviour King who'd come into the world, the long-awaited one, the Messiah. And so in this passage he quotes Hosea there, um, the one, uh, let me just have a look at this, um, so it was fulfilled through what the Lord said through the prophet out of Egypt, I will call my son. You remember the stories of how uh, God brought his people out of Egypt and created them into a nation, forged them into the people of Israel, set them apart as people who would be his people, who would demonstrate to the world who he was, who would draw nations to their worship, who would become missionaries to the world. They did it so badly, didn't they? That first covenant uh, was one of um, apostasy and rejection of God's purposes. And yet now God's hand is upon this new one, upon Jesus Christ the Saviour who would usher in the new covenant. And Matthew wants, to know, wants his readers to know that this new work of salvation has begun and that, uh, that God is doing something new and it would have been quite encouraging to Matthew's readers too, who by and large were experiencing persecution, uh, a persecuted minority, wondering where they fitted into God's redemptive purposes, uh, to be reminded that you are part of this new covenant. And so for us too, if we want to just take that line for a second, at times when we're wondering what on earth God's up to in the world, when it seems like the voices outside the church are louder and drowning out the message of the gospel, that actually 
We are part of God's work, this new covenant that he's still doing. So be encouraged in that. Be strengthened by that. Don't be discouraged by what's happening around us. God had called us, as has called us to be part of his new covenant. One of the other significant observations that we might make from this passage is, a, is at face value an obvious one, and that is that Jesus became a refugee. That's curious, isn't it? Jesus became a refugee. And Matthew's audience would have noted the significance of this. You see, one of the things the Jewish people had trouble getting their heads around was um, this idea that God loved people outside Israel. They'd become, and they're not the only ones, strongly nationalistic. And so this idea that other people could be part of this covenant that God was creating, God was establishing, that was counterintuitive to them almost, that God could love people who are different to us, Gentiles. And yet here is Jesus, the saviour of the world, spending some formative time in Egypt. Egypt of all places. You know what the scripture says about Egypt? Now that was the place of slavery. And yet Jesus spent some time in Egypt. Difficult to get your head around as a Jewish person, difficult for us sometimes to get our head around too because, you know, one of the challenges, I think, uh, that we face here, and just let me explain this before you judge me, is that we have domesticated Jesus. We've created Jesus to fit us. You know, one of the things I can remember as a young person growing up in the church is we had a few bits of art around, you know, pictures that you would be shown in Sunday school, that sort of stuff. And they were very formative in terms of um, shaping the way that I and others as young people would have thought about Jesus. Now, no criticism of those who were part of that. That was just typical at the time. But Jesus typically was a bearded lady in a dressing gown with long flowing hair and piercing blue eyes and almost inevitably carrying a, a little lamb that had obviously never been outside because it was spotlessly white. That's what Jesus looked like, or so I was led to believe. Uh, subsequent to doing a little bit more thinking about this, I'm pretty much convinced Jesus looked nothing like that. But that sort of illustrates one of the things that we've done. We've kind of shaped Jesus to fit the way we want him to be. We want him to be comfortable in the world that we live in. We want him to be comfortable in our church, in the worship that we engage in. We want him to enjoy the things that we enjoy. But this passage reminds us that from the beginning Jesus was a refugee and automatically therefore has an affinity with those who are outcasts, those who are downtrodden, those who were rejected in society, those who experienced pain, those who knew what it was like to be pushed aside, separated. He knew what it was to grieve. He, his experience of rejection in the way that this shaped his early years clearly made him an uncomfortable person to be around for some people. Because there were times where he, even his disciples were kind of un, uncomfortable, they were off-put. What's another good word? They were, um, they were uneasy about the kind of people that he was very comfortable with. You know, the woman at the well, they weren't so impressed by that. And yet here he was having a really in-depth conversation with this person. Lepers, outcasts, demoniacs. 
tax collectors. Do we have any of those? Anyone here working for the tax office? You know, those sort of people? Jesus was comfortable with those people. And it begs the question <laughs> whether Jesus would be the sort of person we would be comfortable with or would he challenge some of our comfortable sensibilities? Would he um, ask us some penetrating questions about the lifestyle choices we make or the way that we behave, the recreation we engage in, the priorities that we have? And as I said before, one of the other things this passage invites us to do is to step back a little from the narrative and see that, you know, when Jesus came into the world, it was a clash of kingdoms, a battle between God and evil. The mothers of Bethlehem saw their children as the first casualties in a war that was inevitably being waged between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God. Uh, when Jesus came into the world, Satan was right there trying to overpower the work that he came to do. And the sorrow that those families in Bethlehem experienced was like the sorrow of Mary, whose own heart was pierced as she saw her son walk that road that led him to the cross. God's entry into the world didn't suddenly do away with the pain and the sin and the grief. We continue to live in this in-between time where sin reigns in our world and God's at work. There's these two things, this interface that continues. But God is at work and God has promised ultimately that he will have the victory. And so we say with the author of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, overcome. But Matthew wants us to understand here right from the start, from the very beginning, Jesus identified with the people that he came to save. And those of you with really keen eyes, if you've read this gospel through and even as you look at it today, you might notice that through the passages of the scripture, Matthew makes an important point three times. When Herod died, when Herod was dead, when Herod was dead, three times Matthew makes the point that Herod, he, he didn't last. He's gone. Oh, he strutted around for a while. He was uh, powerful. He did all this stuff. He was a despot. He was, he was terrible. But he died. And he's gone. 4 BC too, if you're interested. Um, he's, he's history. And in a really, well, maybe not such a subtle way even, uh, Matthew wants to assure his audience that God's victory over despotic rulers, no matter how powerful, no matter how brazen, no matter how loud they might be, is ultimately assured. And the suffering experienced by those families in Bethlehem was really unnecessary and senseless. It happened because we, they live in a world that uh, has not been brought fully under the authority of Christ. The suffering experienced by Jesus, by contrast, was not unnecessary, nor was it senseless. Let me encourage you to grab the communion elements that you might have picked up at the door, and if you haven't been able to grab uh, one of these this morning, you'd like one, just wave your hand and we'll get somebody to race out the back and... Um, afford you the privilege of joining us for communion because we want to just take a moment this morning to remember uh, the suffering of Jesus was not senseless and pointless. It was part of God's preordained plan that he would come into the world 
that he would live amongst us, that he would suffer the penalty of sin that was rightly due to us. Sin which continues to have sway in our world, but sin which is ultimately condemned to come under the authority of Christ. And so today, as we come to communion, we remember both his suffering and his victory. And Matthew wants to point us to that too, even in that lament from um, Jeremiah. There is weeping and mourning, but there is hope. And so let me encourage you today to take the wafer if you've managed to extract that as everyone with us. I haven't given you instructions today. I think we've done this before. Uh, to take this little wafer, it's a reminder to us of the body of Christ that was given for us. The body of Christ that experienced the full uh, suffering appropriate to sin, put to death on the cross. Let's eat together as a reminder of Jesus' body given for us. And then the cup too, which reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. As we've said on many occasions throughout the Old Testament, blood sacrifices were a means by which sin might be atoned for or paid for, but the sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of Christ's blood, was enough once and for all, for everyone, for all time, for anyone who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord. And together as his people today who have experienced his love and know the redemption there is in Christ. Let's drink together as a sign of our unity. And before our team come back and uh, play our last song with us, let's pray together. Gracious God who entered into human affairs as a helpless baby, we give you thanks today that we pray to one who has experienced humanity with all its joys and all of its grief. Lord Jesus, today we stand at the cusp of a new year. We make resolutions, we express hopes for the year, we joke about how we hope 2022 will be different to 2021 and 2020, but in reality we can't see the future like you. And in this moment, once again, we affirm your authority over the year ahead. We pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you might pour out your love on your people and on our world, and we wait. Lord, we wait in the context of a world groaning under oppression with political leaders buttressing their own power, their fortunes, their agendas, uh, with violence, with corruption, with coercion, with manipulation and with greed. Lord, we wait for your justice to be done. Lord, we wait in a world in which change has become so rapid and so pervasive that we lament the capacity to understand it or keep up with it. God, we wait in a world which has damaged some of our dreams with the loss of opportunity, with doors that were open but now seem closed, with plans that have been changed or we've had to let go of. We wait in a world where grief has touched us personally with the loss of a loved one, with the diagnosis of an illness, with poor health, with the diminished capacity associated with ageing. Lord, we wait in a world where there is great joy as we see answered prayer, as plans do come to fruition, where dreams are fulfilled, and yet there remains 
this disquieting acknowledgement of the fact that at any time and to anyone, trouble or strife or loss might become a companion. Lord, we wait in a world longing for your return when you will finally and triumphantly overcome evil, when sin will be defeated, when injustice will be righted, when tears and sorrows will be wiped away forever. Gracious God, as we enter a new year, may we turn our faces towards you today. May we be overcome by the fullness of your love, by the reality of your presence, by the assurance of your authority, by the certainty of your victory. May this be a year when we learn to depend more on your strength than in our own, to seek your purposes in preference to ours, to submit to your will over our own desires. Lord Jesus, we pray for ourselves, we pray for our neighbours, for our church and for our world that your victory might push back those ungodly strongholds that we've allowed to take root, that we might experience the reality of your presence in a new and vibrant manner, that your spirit would be alive in your church and that your name would be great among the nations. We give you thanks for the opportunity today to celebrate communion and your goodness to us. Bless your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.